Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now, here's your host, Dr. Nick. When we talk about healthcare data and protecting it, almost everyone is aware of HIPAA. You can't interact with any healthcare organization in any way without having that term thrust upon you on forms that you must sign. Forms, which are probably like all the EULAs, you know, the end user license agreements you sign every time you download and install an app or software. You know the ones, multi-page documents in six-point type font that go on and on and are rarely read. Those HIPAA agreements are similar, perhaps not as long as some of the EULAs, but still dense in content and full of legalese, making them hard to comprehend, and certainly not something any patient has high of mind as they navigate some of the most stressful times in their lives. So what does HIPAA mean and where did it come from? Well, the letters stand for Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Where did this term originate? It came from the federal law of the same name that created a national standard to protect sensitive patient health information from being disclosed without the patient's consent or knowledge. What is protected? Well, the formal term is Protected Health Information, or PHI, which in broad terms is any information relating to a patient's condition, the past, present or future provision of healthcare, or payment. Broad statements and whom this information can be shared with are also broad given the need to share information not just to care for the patient, but also for payment. All this is tempered with another important perspective, that information is about the individual and the regulations have been fairly clear on access to that data. Patients have long struggled to gain access to their health data. This access launched the whole walking gallery jacket that something I'm and many, many other people are proud to be part of. To get a sense of how long this has been going on, I carried and sometimes still have to use a memo issued on September the 13th, 2013 by the then director of the Office of Civil Rights, Leon Rodriguez that detailed my rights to see and obtain a copy of my medical records. It proved to be very effective in overcoming resistance to share my records, but not before I had been challenged with multiple instances of, I can't share that, it would be a HIPAA violation. Thankfully, things are improving as we have covered in prior shows on information blocking. But now, as in all things in life, information sharing and in particular, the balance between security and privacy is an ongoing issue and challenge. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Rita Bowen. She is the Vice President of Privacy Compliance and HIM Policy at MRO. 
Hi, Rita. Welcome to the show. Hello. Nice to see you. So uh, we're talking about HIPAA. It's a regulation that I think almost everybody has experience with. If you've interacted in any healthcare facility, you at least historically filled out paper forms, signed away, who knows what. Um, I, I think we've we, we've all learned the term, but I'm not sure that everybody understands a little bit of the history. It goes back a while. Tell us about HIPAA and where it came about and what it really means. Surely, uh, HIPAA started from the perspective of needing to increase the privacy of health information since we were moving toward electronic health information at that point in the in the 90s. Uh, in 1996, matter of fact, it was first released. And that's when I decided I'd go back to school for my master's for information technology and uh, informatics. Um, so um, it, it was a migration from that standpoint, started in the Clinton era, um, and then actually came into enforcement in the uh, the um, early 2000s. Um, but it, HIPAA hasn't been really updated uh, since all of, since that inception, uh, except for in 2013, I think they came out with the omnibus rule, which uh, enhanced some things. But uh, most recently, uh, right after the election uh, with Biden coming into office in January, they did release a notice proposed rulemaking. So they have released um, new language to modernize HIPAA. And I have taken the time to respond to that. And it's, it's still not right. So um, there's things that HIPAA does good, and then there's things that definitely need to be enhanced in HIPAA as it currently um, is written. A excellent. So uh, first of all, you know, just to put a little bit of context around that. So when we say 1990s, we're talking over 20 years ago. <laughs> so just... I, for, I know, for, I'm probably, for context, so that's a long time from it is, and I'm probably one of the few people that helped in the early days of HIPAA. You know, commenting and writing. I'm commenting on the new version. I'm like, what's wrong with this picture? I should be gone by now. <laughs> <laughs> so hold on a second. So I'm not sure you should have admitted to that. So you're actually part of the contribution to the original HIPAA. Is that uh, you, I did? You part of I the, did actually do that. I was around the original um, work. Um, force. And, you know, I didn't help write the language, but I did critique the language, uh, and on some of the early task force through AHIMA for uh, privacy. So I, I think all of, all, all of that's really interesting, but from a context standpoint, um, let's, let's put this relative to um, the original iPhone, which uh, the first generation comes about, and I use the iPhone because it's the one that you know most people remember. That was 2007, so this was all pre-phones, pre, pre. It wasn't pre-internet, but it was certainly pre any of the sort of digital aspects. So we've moved on, um, and technology has really moved on. We've now got right. digital information. There's a there's been a little bit of update as you sort of described uh, around 2013, but. Let's dive in just a little bit to understand who HIPAA applies to, because the other term that I think is critical here is PHI. And we talk about PHI and covered entities, and I think it's important to understand those. So first of all, tell us what PHI is, um, and then if you would share a little bit about covered entities. Surely, PHI 
is an acronym for personal health information, protected health information. So uh, we often now say EPHI because it's electronic personal health information that's protected. And that's what's to be the new definition of, of uh, what's available through interoperability. And as, as we've discussed, HIPAA started with a hybrid formation of a record with just the infancy stages of electronic. And as we have progressed, the whole delivery of healthcare is different. So how we receive care, how, how our caregivers and clinicians operate and work with health information is totally different. And, and one of the things that that was the reason HIPAA needed a facelift, and I did go to DC and say, HIPAA needs a facelift, so we need to push through that process um, and, and modernize it. So when the notice of proposed rulemaking was released, I was, I was very excited to read that to see how they tried to modernize it. And they, it didn't. <laughs> what they did is make it more clunky from a standpoint, because now there's things in this notice of proposed rulemaking that actually conflicts with interoperability. And in my response back, to HHS for the responses on that, I did explain, you need to allow interoperability to come to full fruition, uh, allow that to come to play. Um, and if you, and if that does, you don't need to modernize HIPAA. <laughs> that, you know, because it, it works from a standpoint of data protection for those who either need to be authorized um, access to that information because interoperability is going to force the the release for those that have a need to know it's for HIEs HINs for the patient or the patient representative it really if that worked well would get rid of what I call in our industry bad actors actors that are trying to masquerade to say hey I'm standing in the shoes of the patient give me this information because those bad actors are the ones that once they get that, they're not governed by any regulation right now that makes them protect that information. They could, um, if, if I directed my information to um, an app that I wanted to create or a, a personal health record, for example, and, and I didn't understand those components, the people who owned that and manage that could then take my information and then resell it, repurpose it, whatever. So I think there's a, a disconnect of what's happening in the world with people trying to monetize and actually take advantage of this information when they really don't have a right. Whereas we should be focusing on information flow for the right reasons to improve population health, to improve patient health. Um, I spoke earlier this morning to another group and we were talking about the fact that, you know, is if I have an, an app that eventually helps me control my own health care, that's to my advantage. Now, not all patients are going to be educated and want to do that, but over time they will. So that's the focus of where we should be focusing the information flow and trying to negate those other bad actors is how I would define them. Yeah, so I, I think interesting um, uh, competing interests that you sort of highlight as part of this. And, you, you know, I'll, I'll boil it down to the patient's interests. And I, I think there's I, I struggle to find a single example of a patient not being able to access their own medical record. I mean, I, it's a real struggle. And I think maybe there's some 
real edge cases in the case of psychiatric illness where potentially that causes additional harm, but they're really on the edge. The vast majority of individuals need and want access. And, you know, I'm a champion of that. I've been part of the sort of movement, you know, dating back to the walking gallery, which really, you know, tried to emphasize this point. And we've seen the launching of these interoperability rules. In fact, the action just recently occurred, but we're still seeing information blocking um, despite that. And I, I think there's, you know, some challenges around that. But when you explain this, you're talking about folks that are essentially, I, I want to say, piggybacking on this patient access piece that are then saying, well, we need it and we're going to work on behalf of the patient. But they're now, so it's like taking data out of the fenced in area and it's now no longer covered. And that to me sounds very much like the, the issue around covered entities. So help people understand what is a covered entity and, and what's going on behind the scenes here. Okay. A covered entity is someone who is delivering that care. In other words, your healthcare facility, your hospital that you go to, that's a covered entity. Your physician, your provider is a covered entity. He, They have an obligation to protect your health information. They're covered by HIPAA. Um, the, the company I work for um, is a business associate of a covered entity. So as a business associate, we have a business associate agreement, which obligates us to protect that health information that we receive. But when you get into uh, a fourth party or these bad actors that I'm referring to, um, the, and, and that's my terminology, I just I just refer to them as bad actors. Um, they they may they don't have a, a direct relationship with the patient. So let me just give you an example of one. Um, a, a fourth party um, may contract an attorney may contract with them to say, "Hey, I'm trying to prepare for this lawsuit. You know, for this patient, I want you to go collect all their health information." Well, the patient has a relationship with the attorney, and they sign an authorization for the attorney to get that information because the attorney is not standing in the shoes of the patient to make healthcare decisions. So they they're signing an authorization or the patient may direct it to them, but they still don't get information for free. But these bad actors that are working for the attorneys are saying, Hey, I can, I can make a profit here. I can get the information and push the facility and say, Hey, I am a, I am, I have a directive and I have an uh, information that I want you to upload to this portal on behalf of the patient. And then they will then turn and sell it or process it over to the attorney. So it, it forces the ownership on the covered entity or those that are representing the covered entity, the hospital, the provider to actually make contact with the patient and say, do you own and control these portals? Do you are you able to shut it down if you want to? Can you get all your information back? And if they say no, 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 then those people shouldn't really be getting that information. So um, we have seen that kind of a cottage industry develop because of the law, which was intended for a very good reason to put the ownership in the patient's hand to say where they want their information and how they want their information. Um, and, and the thing with HIPAA that when it started, you know, those many years ago, 
it became like, I can't because of HIPAA, you know, everything, everybody was like, I can't, it's, it's a HIPAA regulation, I might go to jail. Well, it, it was never intended to be like that, but everybody reacted to, I can't. And so we're trying, the, the issue of modernization and with interoperability is to say, if you can, you should share it appropriately. So to get rid of that mentality of, of, of overprotectedness, of overguarding. You know, it's funny you bring up uh, that that issue of HIPAA and, you know, it was it was the the refrain for I can't do something, you know, exactly. I, I'd see my mechanic for my car and he said, I'm sorry, I can't share that information. It's a HIPAA violation. I, I'm <laughs> I'm joking, of course, but it, it well, felt do, very much it? like that. <laughs> it, it was a real sort of challenge. And, you know, it was used as an excuse. I think we've hopefully moved further on. But, you know, you bring up really interesting points that I think nobody is seeing because we're signing these forms and they're pages and pages long and they include these you know releases i think that are embedded in there and you know in fairness to the individuals so let, let's just reference the the lawyer i think they're working on behalf of the patient i don't think they come with bad or you know, malintent, their, you know, their intentions are good, they're working on behalf of the patient, but they have to use services because they don't find and, you know, so it sort of expands. So it, it, it gets moved out, it's into a different area. How do we fix this? It's, it's not fixed in HIPAA, because we've now moved outside of those boundaries, who's controlling and who has oversight? Yeah, that's a, a, a good question and, and thought process because the government does not want any of us to become paternalistic to a patient and to tell the patient what they can and can't do. But unfortunately, the patients don't really understand. So you're sort of in this catch point. But if if I'm out as a patient and, and someone said, hey, sign this directive, because you can sign a directive for your medical records to go to anyone, even to, as we've been using the term for an, an attorney. So I signed this directive. And so then the, the facility is obligated to provide information to that attorney as you have directed, but under a directive, we're obligated to provide it as if we were providing it to the patient. So right. therefore it's not just the health record. It's not just that component that typically would be authorized to be released. It becomes a much broader spectrum of information because it's now, what's considered in the designated record set, which might include billing information and nothing is precluded, nothing. So um, so anything that's been used in your care and treatment or payment of the claim is now available to that attorney. And did you really intend for them to have all that history? And there's no limitation. So you're not saying just this episode, it may be other information that you just really didn't think they would see because it wasn't about this. For example, you know, you're going to, you've got an attorney because you've been in a wreck and you go in and, you know, they, they, they get you to sign a directive. So they get all of this information. They have to share it with the opposing group. So the opposing group now has it. And they, uh, this is an example that actually happened to uh, one of our members of HEOS. Um, and they said that the attorney got the information, the opposing attorney, and then they asked the patient, have you ever been on anxiety medication? And she, then the response was no. And after several no's, then they finally said, do you mean when you were raped, you didn't have to go on anxiety medication? Well, 
the patient was shocked, you know, because they had didn't think that would be involved in the information that had been released. The patient's uh, spouse was there, knew nothing about this rape. Um, that's what we mean by when directives are being used and it's often inappropriate. A directive should be fo focused that you're directing it for a healthcare release, but not for legal actions because it gets too much information out there. So I, I, I think, you know, I obviously a great example, but terrible example for, you know, the per very personal, <laughs> um, very personal aspect. And, you know, obviously feel terrible for that. But, you know, we're struggling with this in um, a circumstance where, you know, as you say, and you describe, we, we don't want to be paternalistic. And, you know, this, this, it, in fact, has has come to the forefront because we've seen specifically um, around women's health and the, the women's information um, that's being released into essentially an external environment that is no longer covered and doesn't have the sort of privacy regulations. How do we deal with that and where do we go? Uh how we deal with it is we're going to have to get deep into information governance and um, identifying the specific data elements. The problem with uh, reproductive health records, and it's not just women, um, that that information is threaded throughout the entire record. So to, to segment it would be almost impossible. We never say impossible because, you know, there's always going to be a solution found, but it's going to be very time consuming to pull that. And that's part of interoperability. Now, interoperability says you must share if you can share, but certain states now have regulations that they're going to further segment or require segmentation and, and uh, have protections for reproductive records. So if you can't, you, you know, laterally segment just those components, then that becomes a issue of an infeasibility exception. You can't share the information because it's infeasible to pull out just those components. So again, we're fighting against ourselves. You know, it's going to be population health, but then we have these states. So in talking of reproductive health, nothing would make me happier than to see a national um, requirement very much like drug and alcohol and those kind of things regarding the guardrails for this because dealing with various patchwork of states is impossible. I mean, it's not impossible; it's just difficult. So, so we we a complex area, lots to to sort of uh, encompass. You know, I think reproductive and you know the the the, the focus that's been uh, played on that obviously significant issue. We've got HIPAA that's covered under the healthcare, but there's essentially another group. I mean, this comes under, I think, the FTC. Is it, where do you think it should end up? Should we be focusing on let's encompass this and and try and put the guardrails around it and improve HIPAA, or as you described it, does uh, you know need a facelift, or is it a whole new thing? And you know, how do we do that? I. My personal opinion, and it's just my personal opinion, is that we need a whole new thing. <laughs> I don't think the notice proposed rulemaking modernized HIPAA enough. Matter of fact, when it was proposed, this whole uh, reversal of the Dobbs, and then with the Dobbs decision for Roe versus Wade, hadn't even happened yet. So that's created um, 
a cavity of, of requirements. So I think it requires thoughtful pullback and start over. So I think it needs a, a, to be re-engineered completely. Fantastic. So, I, uh, you know, just to be clear, Rita, there's no retirement in your future. You need to get involved and participate <laughs> in this whole process again. Um, obviously, with all of that updated information, um, you, you know, the application of technology, the expansive nature of all of this information that I think was, I, I, I don't want to say wasn't conceived, but we just didn't consider it as part of that, but we need to expand it. And in the intervening period, I think we've all got to be on our guard as to what essentially we're signing away. Um, I know this isn't going to be popular, but people are going to have to start reading those um, uh, documents that they're signing and process them. That's obviously going to create some uh, 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 unacceptable delays in uh, some healthcare facilities. But in the intervening time, I think let's focus on that. Rita, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. So, while we wait for the much-needed HIPAA facelift, healthcare facilities and all the covered entities need to be on their guard to ensure the integrity and security of the information they hold on behalf of the patients. And patients, as always, are central and integral to the delivery of the best possible care and must be partners in the process. It might not be popular, but we as patients must all become better informed decision makers. The Roe v. Wade overturn has placed a spotlight on the importance of privacy of healthcare data and the big gap in legislation and the importance of bringing our data regulations back into the 21st and perhaps the 22nd century. Your better pill to swallow is to fill in the gaps of healthcare data security and privacy and provide patients with both the insights and knowledge to educate as well as effectively manage and control their data. Get deep into information governance and segment the data and its potential uses, and consider including patient representation in your healthcare data governance oversight team. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.